Hey everyone, it's Marvin, still jet lagged from my honeymoon in Europe,、uh, but I'm safe and sound back at home. Although the Good Pop Culture Club is still on hiatus,、uh, since my co-hosts are still、um, out of the country. But don't worry, we'll be back by November、uh, with fresh new episodes of Good Pop.、Uh, but for the time being,、um, I wanted to drop in another fellow Potluck Pod、um, this week.、Um, this time it's They Call Us Bruce, the podcast hosted by our friends Phil Yu, also known as Angry Asian Man, as well as veteran writer and、um, celebrity dad Jeff Yang.、Uh, this episode we're dropping in is one that they aired last month. Featuring our friend So Young Eun,、uh, the director of Liquor Store Dreams, a documentary about Korean American liquor store owners and their children. If you enjoy the conversation, you can subscribe to They Call Us Bruce、um, on your favorite podcast app, and definitely check out Liquor Store Dreams, which is streaming now on Prime Video, PBS, and Apple TV. So, without further ado, please enjoy this episode of They Call Us Bruce. And I was like, "Dang! Like, why would you say it like that?" Hello, and welcome to another edition of They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. I'm Phil Yu, and I'm Jeff Yang, and I have the great honor of welcoming our guest for this episode. The director and producer of the PBS POV documentary Liquor Store Dreams, Soyeon Um. Soyeon, welcome, welcome to the podcast. At long last. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me. Super excited to be here. Again, yes, at long last. We've been we actually been trying to schedule you in for a while, and、uh, we're just so delighted we could get you in before the end of the summer formally because your documentary is fantastic. I mean.、Uh, I'm, it's still kind of dwelling in my mind. Phil and I have been sort of chatting back and forth about it, but it is a documentary, very much about your family's experience and your experience growing up in and around a particular retail establishment that a lot of Korean American first generation immigrants ended up opening, and that in a lot of ways is kind of the epicenter for a range of different tensions and dynamics. Within and around the community, so yeah, tell us a little about where the documentary came from. I actually,、um, so I was part of one of my first film fellowships with the Visual Communications Arm with a Camera Fellowship. Hello, and, yeah. <laughs> I、uh, I'm, on board, I'm on the board of Visual Communications, so I will t- I would tout that anytime we get a chance. Yeah, yeah. They basically helped me get started, and I I thank them all the time、um, because. I applied like several times, didn't get in, and I think it wasn't until I had this concept about me and my dad. I said, "Okay, he works at a liquor store. I think there might be something here." And given the, I think back then it needed to be a five-minute short film, and I thought, "Okay, this is my chance to do do something about my dad." I did the short film. It's called Liquor Store Babies, and it's on Vimeo, YouTube. You could watch it. It's very. Nice, you know, short and sweet, and we got a lot of great responses after. And people kept saying, "Well, why don't you make it into a feature-length documentary?" For me, I made like hundreds of bad shorts before liquor store <laughs> babies, and so for me, I was like, "I, I do like truly do not understand how to go from a short to a feature." And so I think it took me a full year to kind of think about what is that going to take? What is what does that even mean? And 
I think there was just like a moment that made me decide, okay, I'm going to do this. And you'll probably see it in the film. It was uh, when me and Danny, uh, who's co-starring in this documentary with me, he's also another liquor store baby. And he reopens his store and rebranded from Best Market to Skid People's Marketplace. It was at that moment that I was like, okay, I think I kind of see an ending to this possible feature length film that I might pursue. Let's start from there. And then I think for me, I just wanted to figure out how do I make this film in the most realistic way possible? Because I don't come from money. I don't have crazy connections to anybody in film, documentary, just anything. I thought I would actually be doing narrative films up until then. And I think that this opportunity like fell in my lap and I felt a real urgency to pursue it. And so that was kind of took me three, four years. And it, we've really come a very long way. I think the true center of the film for me is seeing your relationship with your dad, but also your relationship to how he made a living, right? And how it kind of created this dynamic within your family. And you expressing kind of the mixed feelings you had about growing up with your family, you know, running and operating this liquor store. And as someone who is Korean American, I too have really like tense feelings about the way we're depicted in the media regarding liquor stores, where they are, where they're situated, who they serve, who they exploit. So a key line in the film that Jeff and I talked about before we started recording was that, you know, you interview a liquor store owner and you ask, you know, how did you get into, how did you you know start your store? And he brings up this kind of refrain that a lot of people say. It's like, oh, you know, they say what they say. Your occupation was determined by who picked you up at the airport. Meaning when you immigrated, <laughs> what what industry would you get plugged into? It's like it's it's whoever it's whatever your your friends and family are also doing, right? And so that's why we see so many Korean liquor store owners. That's why we see so many, you know, Cambodian uh donut shops, right? Like mm-hmm. uh uh, you know, Vietnamese nail salons. This is the story of immigration and this is the story of America in a lot of ways. You would think it's so much more complicated than that because I always thought there was there must have been a phenomenon. Like why is every other Korean person I know either having, you know, they own a liquor store or they have a laundromat or some, you know, something of a business. And I think that was one of my reasons to make the film that I was like, okay, I want to I want to uncover something. And yet a lot of people's answers was, yeah, it was just somebody I knew. And that's how I got into it. And I was like, okay, got it. I, I think one of the things that uh, that is is particularly sharp and painful in some ways about the business is there are very few people who come to America and say, you know what I want to do? I want to open up a liquor store, right? And a lot of the people who do end up owning these establishments actually have professional degrees or, you know, skill sets that they can't actually utilize in America in the same way. Uh, this is not just true for Korean Americans. It's true for Chinese Americans, you know, other other recent immigrants. And this notion of like, oh, well, whatever other people are doing, I'm going to do it too, is because I, where else, if you have no other connections mm-hmm. in this in this country and you can't use the skills you are trained in or, or uh, were able to practice in Korea or wherever you came from, what else are you going to do, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, the the thing which actually struck me is how 
sort of happy and joyful your dad is from the very beginning just to actually do something to to be you know he was talking about you know how good he is at mopping because he had had kind of developed that skill in the first job he had and and he's singing while doing it and i don't know it, it's something that really hit me in my gut because um both in my family um I mean, my dad was a doctor you know so we we did come in on that sort of the gold-plated white-collar immigrant uh, option, as as I think many did, in, you know, from the Taiwanese American community, but a lot of my other uh, relatives, his brothers and sisters, my mother's brothers and sisters, didn't have that that sort of the magic carpet, as it were, and so they ended up working import-export and in retail and in other spaces like that. And again, none of those are jobs they chose. None of them mm-hmm. were jobs they even enjoyed in many cases. Your dad actually being able to laugh and smile and sing around it just says something about him, not really so much about the profession, you know? So that was really beautiful. Yeah, I think I got really, in a way, very, it was a, like a lot of the stars aligned when I made this film because Danny and my dad were almost the perfect characters to cast but obviously they were already existing in my life and I happened to make a film about my life. And so I think that um, the, it, it, the way that the film came out and the way that um, the stories that they would, they would tell me or the way that they just presented themselves on camera was just so natural. And so I'm really thankful for their participation, their willingness to really open themselves up and uh, share so much of themselves with me and they didn't need to. I, I felt, I always felt like, Oh, you don't owe me certain moments or things that you don't do things you're expecting me to, you're expecting or I'm expecting as like a director or somebody behind the camera. And so I think that um, it, it was probably the best parts to have captured them in their natural state, just because in these occupations and the story that I was already telling, it was just so difficult that I, I knew I needed to have people who embodied like joy and somewhat took pleasure in the simple things in a sense. Mm. You know, your father ex- expressly says in, in the film that he does not want you to you know take on the store if something should happen to him or just, you know, in general, like that is not his wish for you. In contrast, Danny is someone who is taking mm-hmm. on he's he's taking this on a multi generational sort of aspect of this, where he is taking on the store after his father dies and helps out his mom. In in a lot of ways, your film it shares a thematic kinship with a couple other documentaries that remind me of. One was Bad Axe, mm-hmm. and the other one is uh, Donut King. Yes, um, yeah. and I, I felt those also have slices of these stories where an aspect of it is this generational pass down of like how do we how do we take part in this business or how do we carry this on or do we even want to you mm-hmm. know when it becomes you know not just our parents dream but maybe is it ours i don't know you know and um all that to say is like danny is a very fascinating character obviously he he's so amazing i'm wondering i know he was featured in liquor store babies the short how did you? How did he come into your gravitational orbit? Or do you, as children of, of liquor store owners, do you guys have a fellowship that we don't know no, about? No, <laughs> I honestly, it, I think I knew him maybe five years in, and then I found out his dad had a store, and so I was so shocked when I found out. I was like, I think I, um, I was, I met him through a friend in college, 
And I, we were hanging out one night um, with a bunch of friends at his house. And he says, oh, my dad needs to get up at 4 a.m. because he has to go to the store. And I said, oh, what store do you have? And he said, oh, there's a, it's like a convenience store in Skid Row. And I said, oh, I didn't know you, your parents also had a store. Like my parents also have a liquor store. And I think that from then I, I was just so, I guess I'm fascinated because at that time I always felt like, I think when you're growing up, you always think very, you're, you're alone in your journey that nobody understands what you're going through. And so I, to find somebody else that also ha- had a store was, it brought me a great solace just because a lot of my friends I grew up with, a lot of their parents only had very like white collar jobs. And um, I was the only one whose parents were really like in a small business. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I feel like when I met him, just as a friend, he was amazing. But obviously like the, <laughs> the story really started when uh, he went to Nike And he came back. And I think for me to know that he, his dream job, to have achieved his dream job at Nike and then to, to know that like the things that he went through to get that job, um, which spoiler alerts, which is not really like a spoiler, I guess, but in order to get the job at Nike, in the spirit of Nike of just do it, he ran (laughs) from Los Angeles all the way to Portland on foot, like truly four scumped it. And I just thought that was so mind boggling. And then for him to quit, come back after his dad passed away, like, I think I had like a huge meltdown just because for me at that point in my life, I did not even achieve my dream. So I I witnessed a friend of mine achieve his dream and then forfeit that dream because of his of his dad. And I think I wanted to understand it a little bit more. And he is such a in a sense, an extreme person, right? Like, who does that? Who? Why would you ever think that was not a requirement of Nike? And even Nike themselves were like. That's amazing. Um, you were probably already hired before you did that, but now that you did that, um, <laughs> would have given yes. you a job anyway. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think that um, he he was somebody that I always felt um, the different sides of the same coin in a sense. Like we we shared the same upbringing, and yet felt so differently about our our past, our store, our parents, everything. And so I think that's why I wanted him in the film as someone I could, as like a mirror, like a reflection, just so I could bounce ideas off of and try to come to a conclusion about my own journey. You know, I said this to Phil, that Danny and his journey and his family's journey almost feels like it could have been spun off to a whole separate documentary just because there's so much stuff going on in there. And he's such a a fascinating character, to your own point, right? That arc of showing him doing this, again, extreme quest to get his job, and then, surprise, surprise, when his father passes away, deciding to actually give up that, that dream consciously. Like he says... I'm doing this because I want to, mm-hmm. not because I have to, right? In order to help his mom out and essentially run the store that his parents had as their legacy. You you can see so many things going on in his brain in terms of both what he's trying to accomplish. You know, when we see the pictures of him with his father on his father's deathbed, uh, you know, or, or ailing his, his sickbed, right? Uh, from which he he passed away, it's almost like he's actively trying to recapture, and he even says as much, something that he didn't have before. He had a bad relationship with his father. 
this was his way of, in some ways, both in life and in death, sealing that gap. But then he does this thing, which you mentioned, which is he takes the store and then he turns it from, you know, Skid Row Liquor Mart into Skid Row's People's Market. And he purposely focuses on trying to serve the community. Uh, there's this incredible scene where he's celebrating Chusok, right, with Black members of the community. And you look at, you know, kind of the display, and it combines people who are ancestors of his, but also like Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, mm-hmm. Martin Luther King, Harriet Tubman. It, it, and, and you know, both uh, people from the community are speaking. He's speaking. He's doing Korean drum, you know, a performance outside. There's... You, you think to yourself, like, this is a generation who, as they embrace the prior generation's legacy, it's not just the legacy of the hard work and sacrifice, but it's also the legacy of the tensions and the persistent problematic dynamics that exist between Korean retail owners and, in many ways, the communities they serve that they're trying to address. And that's a big part of the conversations you also have with your father. I mean, it was actually very hard for me to watch you talking to your father uh, about those moments. For, I guess for context, so a lot of the film is obviously my journey to understand my dad in general as a liquor store owner, how he came into it, his origin story, coming to America, as well as I think when 2020 hit, so much of the story changed, obviously. I think so much of our lives were impacted, not just by COVID, but the Black Lives Matter movement, George Floyd's death. I think so much just us as Asian Americans, I think we were all grappling with something within our own community, within our family. And I think I needed to address that in the film. I was already making a film about me being a child of a liquor store owner. And of course, a lot of our stores are in predominantly black and brown neighborhoods. And for me to make a story about this and then not address what is happening, it felt like, why am I even making this movie? Why am I not going to address the huge elephant in the room? And if I don't go to that scary place, like there is... There's just no point as me making this film. And so I think I wanted to talk to my dad face on about scary things like anti-Blackness or what he thinks, because we all know what our parents think about Black people or the Black community or just their prejudices against anybody. Because honestly, like, I think that I'm sure this goes for anybody. Like, I feel like if you're a Korean American, Chinese American, I always feel like you always think you're like the superior race all the time and you just like hate on everybody else and i always felt like that's very much true especially korean people who i feel because they were colonized they are almost always in a victimhood mindset that they're always feeling so attacked and i think that coming from that perspective and then me trying to talk to him about what's happening in america was really difficult we never had conversations of race are what it means to be Asian American, what it, how white supremacy even operates. I don't think we have the language um, to, to even explain that. So I think that for me, how do I talk to my dad in like the easiest way possible that doesn't seem preachy because I'm not here to preach. I don't even have the right, in a sense, tools to teach another person how to like decolonize their mind. I'm already trying to do that and it's hard for me. And so we fight on camera. And I think that a lot of people were very shocked because they were like, why would he ever approve of that? Why would he ever consent to you to having that conversation on camera? 
but also, sh- I guess, showing himself so candidly. I think we always see, we've all had fights with our parents, but I think for the first time, because I was able to capture it on camera, people were very taken aback. And I think for my dad, when I even showed him the scene, I think for him, he he's like living in his truth, so he didn't feel embarrassed. He said, that's what it is. That's exactly what I thought. You're the one that's wrong. You know, like, I think <laughs> I'm the one that's right. And my dad's also thinking he's the one that's right. And so I think that, to me, I always felt, okay, well, I feel like somebody might watch this scene and sometimes they might side with me. But reality is America is very conservative yeah. and they're actually siding with him a lot of the time. So mm. um, it was it was a tough time, <laughs> not just for making a film, but just having a relationship with my parents. I mean, th- that key scene is, I mean, okay, one. Did you really have to talk to him while he's watching footage of the protest? I mean, it was like, wow. Like, I mean, obviously, I mean, his emotions were high already by watching this, you know. And I, I, it was like, wow, you, that was powerful. But two, uh, two I got to admit, I was so so envious, actually, of you because <laughs> I was like, I wish I could. my Korean was good enough that I could argue with my parents in Korean. That's what I thought. I thought, wow. I had I wish to my- prepare. <laughs> I wish my Korean skills were as good as yours so that I could actually have a an argument about really like tough issues with my parents. I was like, I, c- I couldn't even do that. You know what I mean? So I props to you, man. That scene was incredible. Thank you. I feel like we fought with our parents before. So I, I kind of already knew what he would say, like the comebacks that he would come back with. So I, I consulted with my editor, who's full, like truly a Korean speaker. And she said, this is how you say things. Um, and just, uh, I think I just made a list in my head because I didn't want to have this conversation and not know what to say because a lot of the times, I don't want to engage in this conversation. Like, I don't want to be in a situation where I'm fighting with my parents and then usually they'll be able to say something that really shuts me up. And he did towards the end. But I think I, in order to engage in this conversation, I was like, okay, well, what am I going to say next? How do I progress this uh, conversation so I can get to the root of what I want to actually say? And that fight was maybe 30 plus minutes my mom in the background was like stop yelling like you guys are just like do you guys have to have this conversation right now like um can you stop filming blah 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 and then you know i cut it down to five minutes or so um but yeah i think it's one of the things that uh probably polarizes the audience the most i get a Mm. lot of either great emails or a lot of hate mails that are like you're so stupid why would you ever say that um so, you know, to each their, their own. I mean, everyone's going <laughs> to. Yeah. Can I bring up another member of your family? Because mm-hmm. it was a brief scene, but it was very memorable. Uh, and this is your sister yeah. uh, who, who comes in and I guess is trying to tell you how to run, you know, run the register and, and uh, make sales in the store. And then you, you turn around to her and basically say, well, if, you know, if you know so much about it, why don't you want to take it over? And then she says something which really kind of blew my mind because like your mom's moving around in the background and everything uh she says you know you're not gonna catch me doing bitch work like this basically right Mm -hmm. and and just sort of speaks of it so incredibly dismissively and you sound like a little taken aback as well but you know this is not to make her out as a villain you know it's i think it's something which 
encapsulates very succinctly the feeling that like this is not work that even her parents, your parents, should have been doing. So why would why would the next generation want to do it too? Mm-hmm. And I, I I'm kind of curious, like a what your sister in retrospect, <laughs> knowing that that's on film now, uh, feels about that. But but also, you know, whether or not this is like a conversation that you've had before uh, around, you know, what the plans were going to be. You're going to go, you know, do documentary mm-hmm. filmmaking, which you're doing. She's going to go into quote unquote business. But then why not this business? Yeah, because I always thought my sister was very business savvy and she always said she wanted to own a business, but just not this one. And I think we've always both knew we would never work in a liquor store just because we both hated it. And then I think in that first conversation, I would I don't know if I've ever asked her straight straight on. And so I was so taken aback because it was such a unexpected answer because she literally says, I don't want to do bitch work. And I was like, dang, like, <laughs> why would you say it like that? Um, especially knowing that our parents do it. And it feels so insulting. Um, and so I think that, like all the members of my family, I think they stand by their word. They're like, yeah, I said what I said. <laughs> That's what I think. Take it or leave it. And so uh, I think she still wants to pursue some type of business. But my sister also loves doing like a hundred things at once so she does have like commitment issues so i think that for her she just wants to have like a good life whatever that means and i'm like i fully support it there's like this inside joke thing or something you're like what's the business gonna be selling bows or something like that oh yeah (laughs) she had a bow business she tried to do yoga she wants to be a kindergarten teacher she wanted to you know like she studied hotel management which she did in las vegas and then she we're we're very much customer service people. We're very much front facing, like love love talking to people type of people. And so I said, we all know what you should be doing. I don't know why you're doing all this other stuff. And so I think as her sister, I always encourage her to do whatever, pursue whatever. But the thing is, she never really follows through mm. because she likes to do it. And then once things get really really hard, she's like, let me try something else. And mm. so. That was one scene because she did have a bow business that she was very committed to. She like printed out all the labels, like I wore it, and then she quit. So her her brief moment on screen is very memorable. I thought she was a great character. So uh, you know, it was harsh, but I give her props for being real about it and and yeah. saying it kind of in a. I mean, it's just entertaining. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so so I, I wanted to ask you about this also, and uh, Phil had mentioned bad acts. Which, you know, of course, we interviewed uh, David Siv and it was a great conversation and we loved the documentary there, too. I will say that there's something really kind of similar about those, your documentary and his, beyond simply the the thematic connection of a family business and when, whether it's going to pass to the next generation, etc. There's also this constant feeling that the documentarian, in, in your case, you, and in his, his case, him, right, we're present, right? We're, we're a part of the actual documentary. And obviously there are documentaries like that, often that focus very strictly on a specific relationship. But in this case, it, it kind of complicates things because, you know, on the one hand, you're trying to capture things that are happening around you. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, you're actually in the middle of these conversations. You're on screen. You're part of the family, of course, and the family has its own reactions to you. And ultimately, these films are about your relationship with your father, with your mother, with the people around you. But 
I'm wondering whether or not there was any, you know, kind of conscious decisions like, okay, I realize I'm going to be a part of this documentary anyway. So I'm just going to lean into that. This is really going to be about us, right? So, you, you know, there are scenes where you set up essentially static cameras to kind of cut back to you and to show your expressions or reactions as you're interviewing your father and so forth. You know, there are documentaries, I, I think traditionally, documentaries try to kind of be arm's length as much as possible, even when the subjects are very intimately close. But in this case, I think yours and, and with Bad X also David's, these documentaries are different. They, they really acknowledge the fact that uh, the presence of the, the documentarian is going to change the surroundings. So might as well kind of capture that as well. So I, I wanted to get a sense for the choices made for that and, and whether that made it easier or harder to tell the story. Well, shout out to David Siv, because we always said that Bad Axe and Liquor Store Dreams would make a d great double feature. Mm. <laughs> and we also share a producer, Diane Kwan. She's amazing. Mm. I think that for me, I always knew that I would be in the film just because my own narrative and my role was almost a vehicle to tell both of Danny and my dad's story. Mm. That there was also criticism where they're like, why, why do you need to be involved? Technically, I didn't, but also it wouldn't make sense. Like, there are dots between Danny and my dad that if I wasn't present, that they would be two different subjects. And so I think I needed myself to navigate the stories to really guide the audience in why I even started filming in the first place all the way to the lessons that I learned and um, how I affected both Danny and my dad. Mm. And I think that the hardest part was just trying to figure out how much do I even want to show myself? And I think that ultimately I had to do voiceover, which was mm. the hardest part because I, I've never written voiceover before. And, um, but I had the greatest mentor, Nanfu Wong, who is the most amazing person for voiceovers. Um, and I think that, with the lessons that I learned, I just, I learned so much in how to inform the audience as well as still feel present even when I wasn't really on screen. And so um, it, was a, it was difficult because so much of the process, I was alone during the filming and I shot it mostly with one camera besides the times where I was also on, on, on screen. Mm -hmm. So I, I like set up the camera facing me, me shooting my dad, situations like that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't think I ever second guessed if I would be in the film or not. I think it was just harder because I did feel like I did hold so much power mm. as somebody who is not only the narrator of this story, but I am physically holding the camera and trying to engage in these tough conversations, conversations I've never had before. And so... Trying to do all all of that was pretty hard, and then I don't know. I, don't, I always say, don't make a personal documentary. It's really tough. <laughs> <laughs> you put it all out there, uh, but it's a fantastic job. So, thank you. This is a good time for us to take a break. But when we return, we will do our favorite segment: the good, the bad, and the WTF with Soyeon Nam. So stick around. We'll be right back. Who's responsible when the systems that we trust to guide and protect us fail, leaving us worse off than we were before? We want to tell you about a new podcast from Tenderfoot TV called Dear Alana that speaks to this issue through the tragic story of Alana Chen. 
In 2019, at 24 years old, Alana disappeared from Boulder, Colorado, leaving behind two dozen journals chronicling her love of the outdoors, ultimate frisbee, and a dream of becoming a nun. She also kept a secret, one that put her dream at risk. At 14 years old, Alana confessed to her priest that she was attracted to women and was instructed not to tell her parents. Over the next seven years, Alana covertly received conversion therapy, which her family later discovered and now believes played a role in her fate. So who's responsible? Through her journals, Alana's own words will guide us to those answers, an unraveling mystery and spiritual memoir about the promise of perfection and the price we pay to belong. Dear Alana is available now. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts. To binge the entire season ad-free, visit tenderfootplus.com. And we're back. All right. On the second half of They Call Us Bruce, this is where we do our favorite segment, our signature segment, the good, the bad, and the WTF. So, Jeff Yang, what are we doing? Lay it all down. Give us the rules. The rules of engagement are as follows. Uh, this is, of course, our roundtable format segment, our signature segment, in which we take a single topic and serve it up three ways with our guest. And in this case, I think that the uh, topic we're going to do, uh, which certainly makes sense, is the good, the bad, and the WTF of making liquor store dreams. So we'll go first through the positive, and then a negative, and then finally, with a WTF, it could be good, could be bad, could be neither. It's just something you're still kind of dwelling in, mulling over, considering after having accomplished this amazing uh, documentary creation work. So so let's start with the good. What was the good of making Liquor Store Dreams? That I made no compromises in my vision and the film that I wanted to create. Because initially, back in 2019, when I was crowdfunding this film and I was like doing everything that I could to like make this very small film into into reality. I think for me, I just wanted to make a film that I knew would represent not only my experience, but most of Korean Americans, people's communities, experiences. And I just wanted something that stayed true to us. And I think that is somewhat hard when you work on a film for so long and things get lost along the way. And then um, as more people come on board, I feel like the vision and the core of the film might get diluted. But I think that for me, because this film was completely made by me and was so independent that I had no compromises. I really stuck to my vision and everybody was on board and it came out exactly the way I intended. And I think I'm really thankful for that because I know that not everybody's afforded that Mm. at the end of the day when they're making something because they do need to make compromises and they need to think about the end goal, but I, I'm really happy that it came out exactly the way I wanted. It's a, a singular vision. I mean, even the way it ends, the little coda that you add to it, uh, it just it, it's it's such a distinctive voice around a topic which I think a lot of us have seen different angles on. I mean, I will say this: one of the things which I thought was really powerful was you did include in the film. Other films, right? Like snippets mm-hmm. of, of how other people have depicted liquor store owners, you know, kind of Korean uh, retail owners in general. And seeing this side of that phenomenon in, in the community was just really refreshing and, and really humanizing. Um, but that said, <laughs> there are probably some dark sides or, or downsides as well. So, uh, so what is the 
the bad of making liquor store, liquor store dreams? I can't even say the worst things are even that bad just because the out- outcome was so great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do always think about that filmmaking in general is a very lonely journey. That's that there's a lot of times where there's so much self-doubt and that there's so much, um, there's sometimes a lack of motivation because I do think that you work on something for three, four or five, you know, plus years. And I think that how can you keep going on? How do you keep moving forward? Especially when you have no money, you don't have any connections. I think that so much of the journey was just me trying to figure things out without a clear path. And I think that was the hardest for me because I didn't have somebody who had done this before and did it in the way that I wanted to also do it. Um, and so I think I, I really just tried everything. I, I think that's why I went so hard without shame and um, kind of like sh- I shot for the moon and we truly like landed amongst the stars at least like that far because who knew this film would even get into Tribeca or we would be invited to Pusan or go to BFI London and I think even um, for the film to even now be on PBS POV was such a in a sense so I could have never imagined that and I think that all the suffering, <laughs> the loneliness and the long nights was obviously worth it. But mm. I think in the moment, um, I think it's tough. Like for any cre- creator who is also making something very personal, this is something that will affect you beyond the premiere. That these are real people that you are talking to and capturing and that it can't be a single encounter that you do you do need to owe the people in your film um, more than just this film. Mm-hmm. And so I think that I, I had a lot of, felt like maybe obligation, I don't know if that's the right word, but respons- a responsibility to really tell people's story accurately and respectfully and while also suffering alone in a sense as a filmmaker <laughs> you, you actually reminded me of something that um when jeff when jeff and i and philip wong were writing our book and we were in the throes of it like it was we were we were buried philip told us you, you know in a, in a fit of motivation he was like guys our future selves will thank us for this moment <laughs> That we're yeah. powering through. Okay, just think of your future self. Like, thank you for this. So, and that actually was super helpful uh, when we're when we're really suffering. So, uh, I was just reminded of that. I feel like every artist goes. Every artist goes through that period where just you you feel like you're just crawling through the mud, mm. and that you don't see a way out, but you just kind of have to keep going. I there have been moments though where I feel like the present me looks back at past me and I was like, you fucking idiot. Why did you do that? Why did you commit to this? <laughs> Future selves are not always happy with what past selves did. Mm. But anyway. 
Rare, luckily, rarely. It just, you know. Unfortunately, this this documentary doesn't fit in that category. Uh, the, the hard work has absolutely paid off. And it, it has gotten us to a point of uh, the final round in this, talking about the WCF. I, before you actually give your answer, this is not so much a WTF, but it was something that actually was a little side entertainment for me. Because... Um, this film was made over a pretty extensive period of time. It was kind of fun for me just to watch you evolve on screen, <laughs> like your hair, your hairstyles, many your hair many yeah. hair colors. It was like, you know, this is obviously a work that that took a portion of life, as it were, to actually make. I also wanted to say uh, th there are a couple of things which feel like weird little Easter eggs, and I'm not mm -hmm. sure if they were conscious or there, you know, happenstance or whatever. There's one moment where you're actually uh, getting kind of abraded by your mom about not having gotten married yet. You're sitting there and eating, and you're wearing what I believe is a Helen Joe T-shirt. Mm -hmm. uh, and on the back, it says in Korean, don't cry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. My wife pointed it out. And then uh, there's this other uh, recurring theme, and I'm not sure if this is what what this meant exactly, but there's printed on pieces of paper and on, on the walls of at least one convenience store or something like something that translates more or less into like do the right thing or live mm -hmm. the right way. And especially since do the right thing is a recurring visual in, in the film itself. I was wondering if, again, that was just an accidental or coincidental thing. Again, this is in Korean. I don't read Korean. Somebody who I am <laughs> very close to, obviously in my wife uh, does read Korean and, and just said, that's weird. Are those things that were kind of conscious things to you or did you notice them after the fact or or what well i think so much of this film when i say the stars really aligned is that everything that happened in real life just made sense in the film and also side note just for, i usually change my hair every year but for the film which it took from 2019 to 2022 i stopped coloring my hair oh. and so i try to be like I try to maintain continuity within my own character, but it was really tough because I was not used to just having black hair. Anyways, yes, I really wanted to, because I knew that uh, ultimately I just wanted to make my favorite movie. So I wanted to wear t-shirts that I knew repped people that I knew and that I really loved. And Helen Joe is one of my favorite artists. And so that scene worked out exactly the way it should. As for the little signs, I don't know. I feel like, I think some of them were on Danny's, Danny's store or my store but I think that so much of it just always ties in with the mantra of mm. what you know what Danny feels or um what we were aiming for and so I think that um there's a lot I think there was a lot of scenes where I was like oh these are easter eggs for me mm. but I don't know if other people will get it um but that sign I think it just it just happened to be there wow and yeah that's super cool. All right. So what's your WTF? <laughs> oh, my, I, the WTF, I guess I thought about this because I always anticipated there was a quote that didn't make it into the film. And my dad says, there's a there's an uprising every 30 years. And I said, well, why do you think that is? And he says, I don't know. But from, a, from our perspective, we always say, well, if you really think about it, like from the Watts Rebellion 1965 to, you know, the 92 LA uprising, it really t does tie to police brutality. Like I, it is a reoccurring theme. And so I always anticipated, I wonder if there would be a sequel that maybe by then I will maybe have a child and um, what 
what the uprising or what they would feel like back or in in the future, how they would feel about it and how that would tie to, again, not just me, but to my dad and then to my my future child, possibly. Um, so I always, I think because I wanted to make a film that would last for a very long time, that would stay relevant, that's something that I, I can foresee. But who knows? I think that so much, this is really like the beginning. And then so many topics that I'm interested in and stories I want to tell kind of stem from this. Well, whether it is toxic male masculinity or um, political violence or just violence within families. I think these are, these are topics that I, I really want to explore. So um, I don't know if that was a WTF, but I kept thinking about it. I was like, oh man, I don't know what the future holds, but I do know that I hope that people can look back in 30 years and they watch the film and be like, wow exactly truly relevant 30 years later you know 40 years later whichever so excellent amazing okay so that's our three rounds uh congratulations so you have completed the <laughs> the three-step program <laughs> the gauntlet the good, the bad, the WTF. tell our listeners how can people watch liquor store dreams you can watch Liquor Store Dreams now for free with Korean and Spanish subtitles on PBS POV up until October 8th. They'll have it for free until then. And then you can buy it or rent it on iTunes forever. So uh, take your pick. But I always say watch it for free while it's there. And we only have the Korean and Spanish subtitles on PBS. Great. Oh, I, I got to say this. I, I've known So since for a couple years now, but my earliest memory of her is actually she, uh, So used to come to our old um, fresh off the show, uh, fresh <laughs> off the boat after shows. Do you remember that? We used to do yeah. that. And so used to come and be in the, you know, the live studio audience. So, uh, Jeff, I thought you might appreciate that. Been a long term, long term fan. Yeah, <laughs> it's been a, it's it's been a minute. Um uh, so how can people find you online if they want to connect? Well, I'm on all social medias. I'm pretty online all the time. And so uh, you can also follow me on Letterboxd. I watch like a movie a day, just a lot of bad movies all the time. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm here. What's your handle on, uh, on the oh, social medias? On most of... You can find me on Liquor Store Dreams or my personal uh, social handles, S-S-O-Y-U-N-U-M. Awesome. Extra Excellent. S in the beginning. Um, extra. Do not do not forget the extra S. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff Yang, how about you? Uh, original spin still cling to X a little bit longer. Hopefully not much longer. Uh, Blue Sky Original SP dot in, and then Original Spin on Threads and on Instagram and wherever else you might want to find me. Uh, if you want to find me, Phil, how about yourself? How do people find you? You can find me at Angry Asian Man. I refuse to call it X, by the way. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> or on AngryAsianMan.com. You can find They Call Us Bruce at They Call Us Bruce on some of the socials. Uh, you can, If you could hop onto Apple Podcasts and give They Call Us Bruce a rating or positive review, we would greatly appreciate it. It helps people find the show. The film is Liquor Store Dreams. Our guest is So Yun Um. 
Soyan, thank you so much for being on They Call Bruce and thank you for sharing this incredible documentary. Thank you for having me. This has been amazing and I, I, I loved it. Well, we love the documentary, so thank you so much. Thank you. All right, everybody. Until next time. Peace. Bye. You've been listening to They Call Us Bruce with Jeff Yang and Phil Yu. Our theme music is by Kiro One. They Call Us Bruce is a member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian American community. Find out more at podcastpotluck.com. And thanks for listening. Thank you.